Welcome to the teaching ministry of Walt East, lead chaplain at Sky Valley Chapel. We hope this teaching will serve as a practical guide for your daily walk as a Christ follower. We encourage you to follow along with your Bible and life notes, which can be found in the podcast show notes or on our website at svmin.com. The Bible calls them scribes and teachers of the law. They were the theologians, the the Bible scholars of Jesus' time. They were experts in particular, and they're called the teachers of the law. The 613 prescriptions that God had given in the first five books, the, the Torah, the books of Moses, they knew these things inside and out, and they were people of incredible intellect. But on top of that, they had an incredible passion for God's Word. And they lived in a time when it was a lot harder to be a Bible scholar than it is in our time. Today, if you want to know something, you just pull out your your smartphone or you go on your your computer and you can just look up a verse in 26 different translations or the original languages, you know, within a minute or so. Bingo, it's right there. You have other study tools at at your fingertips. I think on my computer... In my Bible study library, I think I've got probably at least 2,000 books, reference books for studying Scripture. Now, my wife will say, well, that means that you can get rid of all those hard copy books that you have. And I say, not so fast, honey. <laughs> I like the feel of a book in my, in my hand. But that's not how it was for them. On top of that, because they were dealing with scrolls, they didn't even have the chapters and verses. Those weren't put in until till much later. And so these folks were just really amazing in their knowledge, and and everybody looked up to them and deferred to them. When they walked down the streets, people would bow to them, and people would make way for them. There was another group that was related to them called the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were kind of the special ops God followers of those days, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. Yet these folks were also the arch enemies of when Jesus the Messiah came. Some of them claimed that Jesus was actually demonic and said that that's where his miracle power came from, that his power came from from Satan and from demons. Others, the vast majority of them, but not all of them, they wrote him off as a a false teacher or or a false prophet. And those that were in Jerusalem, the majority of those there, they they were actually knee-deep by this time that we're in our scripture this week. They were knee-deep in a plot to have Jesus killed. In fact, when Jesus first told his closest followers, this is our last trip to Jerusalem, I'm going to die there, he said, I'm going to be turned over to the elders, the leaders of the city of Jerusalem, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and they are going to have me killed. Now, how could these guys know scripture inside and out and get it so wrong? The thing we need to understand is that the problem isn't the Bible, the problem is us. And so today we're going to step back and ask this question, how in the world did they miss it so badly? And if we have an enemy who's always, who loves to come and, and, and take God's greatest blessings and turn them into, into poison, how in the world is it that he can take this great, great gift of God, God's self-revelation about himself, about salvation, about how we are to live, how in the world does he sometimes match that up with our flesh and twist it around so that instead of blessing us, it messes us up. 
So we're going to dig into that with a few verses as we continue our study through the book of Mark. In the last few weeks, we, we've, seen the, we've been looking at the last few days of Jesus' life as he's come to Jerusalem. The crowd, because of all of his miracles and his, and his teaching, a large part of them are enamored with that. And they think that he is the Messiah, but it's a different type of Messiah as we talked about a few weeks ago. Their version of the Messiah was a guy come riding in on a horse with a sword and you know, just, just kicking kick tail on the, on the Romans, setting up that great Jewish earthly kingdom that existed back in the days of David. Instead, Jesus comes in, he goes in the temple, and, and he comes back the next day and he clears house because it had become a place of, of merchandising. They had set up a bazaar in the, in the court of the Gentiles, the place in the temple where non-Jews, the only place in the temple where the non-Jews could go, where they were supposed to be drawn to God and they could be able to go there and play and reflect about Yahweh, the God of the Jews that, was, that wanted to reach all peoples, not just the Jewish folk. And Jesus is so upset that he returns and he, he upsets the tables and he starts teaching. He leaves, he comes back the next day, and the teachers of the law, these folks we're going to talk about today, and as well as the Pharisees, the other religious leaders, they go after him with a series of questions. They question his authority and they, they asked him trick questions. And at the end of it, Jesus had silenced them all literally. Listen to the verse right before what we're picking up today. It says this, and from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. So Jesus turns the tables on them after he's literally turned the tables a, few day, a couple days earlier. He turns the tables on them and, and, he, and he starts asking them questions and, and teaching them. He starts challenging them. He turns to these teachers of the law, these, these theologians, these Bible scholars, and they say, you, you don't understand. He says, you don't understand what you're studying. He says, how, how have you guys blown it so bad that you don't understand the Messiah, who he is, and what he's supposed to do? You guys keep saying that he's the son of David, their great king, uh, the, the, the greatest king in their memory, you know, the, the glory days of Israel. He's a descendant of David in which the descendant is always lesser than the ancestor. And you just see him as an earthly king. How come you don't understand what all the scriptures say about the Messiah? He's far more than an earthly king. And then he says, how dare you take your biblical knowledge and use it as, as something to exalt yourself and to take advantage of other people? Man, he says, you're going to be punished severely. And before we read the verses where, where, where this takes place, I want to point out something about where I'm going to go today with this. And that is that this is not just a warning for those of us who have the privilege of having a platform such as this to teach God's Word. It's not just for those who lead a study group or a, or a Sunday school class or, or a small group or a Bible study. It's not just for pastors and those kind of people. It's for any one of us who takes the Bible seriously and takes following Jesus seriously. Because the same thing that caused the, the, the teachers of the law to miss it, all of us who are serious about God's Word can succumb to that and miss the boat. All of us can be seduced into using the Bible, not to grow spiritually ourselves, but for all kinds of things that in the long run sound good, but they can really mess us up. And so I hope that today will, will keep us from blindly falling into the trap of people who use the Scripture that way or teach it that way, that we will understand why God gave us the Scriptures, what He wants out of us, and how Bible study can go bad. 
So let's take a look at Mark chapter 12. It's going to be up on the screen here, beginning at verse 35. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, How is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ, or the Messiah, is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, and here he's quoting Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Jesus continues and says, David himself calls him Lord. How can this be his son? The large crowd listened with delight. So there's other people there other than the teacher of the law, and they're listening in on this conversation. And they're like, get him, Jesus. Get him. You know, they're, they're seeing this, this new young rabbi that, you know, he's taken on these, these guys that have studied scriptures, that have been well known, who, you know, people saw him in their robes. They identified who, the, who these guys were. And so they, you know, it's, it's kind of like I've said before, you know, it's like when you're in school. And all of a sudden you hear, fight, fight, fight. And everybody runs to go see the fight that's going on on the playground or the alleyway behind the school or, or whatever. And then he says this, verse 38, as he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses. In other words, they, they manipulate and they use people for their selfish gain. And he continues, he says, he says, and for a show, he says, it's not really what's in their heart, but for a show, because the spotlight's on them, they make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. Wow. I don't know about you, but, but for me, that's, that's enough to say, wow, I don't, I, I don't want to read the Bible because... It's a serious thing to, to, to misuse it, and, and you know, that can mess me up if I read the Bible. Well, that's not the point here. God wants us to read his word. He wants us to know his word. He wants us to, to live his word. But how does it go bad in the lives of teachers and some of the prophets long before Jesus' day, and how does it happen still to this day? I want to share with you some principles that, that I believe can be warnings to us to make sure that we use the Scriptures as God wants us to use it so that we will become more the men and women that God has called us to be, those of us that are, that are, that are Christ followers. As opposed to the people who, who when G Jesus showed up, when God showed up in the flesh, thought that they were protecting God, but what they were really doing was fighting against God. So you ready? Take out your life notes, uh, that half sheet of paper you should have gotten when you came in, and, and we're going to go. On your life notes, there's a place to write some of these things down. I hope you will, so you can look at them later. How Bible study goes bad. Number one, when we use it as binoculars instead of a mirror. When we use it as binoculars instead of as a mirror. And understanding this is absolutely foundational. It's why I put it as number one here. It's absolutely foundational to using the scriptures as they were intended. The purpose of the Bible is not so that I can judge the world and other people and see how messed up they are and how righteous I am. So that I can you know, thump my chest and feel good about it. That's not the purpose of the scripture. The purpose of the Bible is so that I can understand my Lord. I can understand the pathway of salvation and what he has called me to do and how he has called me to live in light of what he's done, which means that it's a mirror, not a binoculars. We're actually going to see this as we, as we build through the others in, in, in this message, the other points where it goes, because it goes bad in a lot of these others because we missed this first one here. You know, we're always looking through our binoculars. Okay, I know what the Bible says. Let me see, let me see what I can tell about that person over there. And let's be, be honest, it is incredibly easy. 
It's incredibly easy to turn it into binoculars, is it not? Don't look at me that way. You and me, we all do it. That's just where we naturally go in our flesh. And it's no different now than it was in Jesus' day. It's why this principle is so important, because I have to fight that. I have to fight it when I read the Bible, or when I'm preparing a sermon, the the first thing that sometimes, okay, how is that going to apply to the people at Sky Valley, the people that I'm speaking to? No, that's not what I should be doing. The first thing I need to do anytime I'm studying Scripture is how does it apply to me? And every week, the challenge for myself is as I'm studying to to bring God's Word to teach you here, it's what, is, what do I have to do? What do I have to change in my life? How do I apply this to myself first? And I'm telling you, you know, I've learned over the years that I, I can't get up here and do that without doing first through my life, looking at it through my life, holding a mirror up first. Let me show you the purpose of Scripture that, as Paul tells us in 2 Timothy. Paul is writing to, to young Timothy, and he's reminding him that, that, that Timothy had the privilege of growing up in a, in a believing home. His mother and his grandmother were believers, don't, not sure that his father, don't think his father was. But from infancy, he says, from infancy, you have known the Holy Scriptures. And here's the, here's the purpose, he says, which are able to make you wise for what? For salvation. The, so it explains, the Scriptures explain who God is, who we are, and God's plan to restore all that was broken back in the beginning, there in the garden and with Genesis, with Adam and Eve's sin, which brought sin into the world, this fallen world, all the way up to our own personal, our present sin, it makes us wise for salvation. Through faith in Christ Jesus. Through faith in Christ Jesus. And you could substitute the word, we, the first song we sang today was trust and obey. When you see faith, you could also say trust, through trusting in, in, in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Why? Well, the rest of the verse says this, so that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So how can we live righteous lives? By studying the scripture, applying it to our lives so that we can be thoroughly equipped for what God wants us to do. The purpose is that we understand the path of salvation through Christ and the way to live now that I'm saved. Not the path of how to live to get saved, because we don't earn our salvation, but now that you are saved, if you've crossed that line of faith in Jesus Christ, this is how God wants you to live. And I'm going to tell you, if you haven't crossed that line of faith in Jesus Christ and you're trying to live the Christian life, and I've heard people say, I'm going to live the Christian life even if it kills me. Guess what? It will. You and I cannot live it. We can only live it as, the, as Jesus Christ indwells us, as his Holy Spirit indwells us and enables us to do it. There's many frustrated people out there that even though they claim the, the title of Christian, they're trying to earn their salvation. They think that, okay, if I follow, if I follow this book, if I follow what God wants, it, then God, I'll be acceptable to God. Folks, that ain't how it works. God accepts you, as the old song says, just as I am. He takes you, and he cleans you. You don't, you don't clean a fish before you catch it, okay? Those of you fishermen know that. You catch the fish, then you clean it. And that's what God does. He takes us as we are. And every t- single time you read the Bible, you should ask yourself this question. What does this teach me about living righteously? It's the first question I believe that you should ask. Because if all I have is theology, if all I have is an outline... I have missed the purpose of the passage. 
That's why when I teach you folks, I always have a, a challenge question at the, at the end of the life notes. You know, it's on to this week, it's will you use the Bible as a mirror? Those of you who have been with me all these years, you know, I, I started using life notes, I don't know, 25, 30 years ago. It's my brand of my notes for teaching, and, and if you don't use them, that's fine, that's up to you. I think they help. I think they help people remember stuff. But every single week, there might be only be a very rare occasion where I don't have a question. I have a statement or something there. But I always want to put a question on there because I never, I never want to spend time teaching and have people walking out the door saying, so what? And you may do that. That's okay. But not really okay. But anyway, you may do that. <laughs> I want to challenge you to the now what? What do I do? Now, what, what, how does God want me to take what Walt or any other Bible teacher has, has talked about in the past 20 minutes? Or some people say, well, you actually go sometimes 45 minutes. What do I do? What do I need? How do I need to use this information? How do I apply that to my life so that I can live for God? What do I do with what I've just heard? So instead of being conformed to this world, I can be transformed by the renewing of my mind and the alignment of my values and my actions with the Word of God. Now, the problem happens when we turn into binoculars. It messes us up. It causes us to get this, this disease, uh, call it log, log eye of disease if you want to, L-O-G-E-Y-E disease. We, we, we look through binoculars and we see that, that speck in someone else's eye, but we're missing the fact that we have a log in our own eye. And Jesus put it this way in Matthew 7. He says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time you have a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. Can you imagine Jesus saying that to you? You hypocrite. You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So you see why I say that it's a mirror? not a binoculars. Everything falls apart when the first thing I do is I, I take it and, and I try to use it on other, on other people. When I listen to a sermon and I hear it, and, wow, okay, I got to send this to four other people before I listen to it again and apply it to my own life. I've got to make sure that this person, this person, this person over here hears this truth. But again, I want to go full, full circle on this, and I want to highlight that we all have that problem, whether we're willing to admit it or not. As I've said, and I've said it earlier, it's, it's, it's just so easy to immediately, immediately go there because then I don't have to deal with my stuff. Denial ain't just a river in Egypt. We don't want to deal with our own, with our own stuff, and that's what the teachers of the law were doing. They lived one thing, and as we're going to see, they, they taught another. The second way Bible study goes bad, when we turn it into a book of suggestions. We turn it into a book of suggestions. You know, you and I... Newsflash, you and I do not get to choose the parts of the Bible that we want to believe. God calls us to believe everything cover to cover. Now, we may not always understand it. It may be sometimes hard to believe. I remember my favorite, my, one, of my favorite Bible, um, one of my favorite Bible characters, the man back in, uh, in Mark chapter 9, who says, Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. You know how many times I've prayed that scripture to, to God as I'm, as I'm trying to study and trying to live out his word. We don't get to choose, and I don't get to go through and say, well, that part's really good advice, and probably, I think I've said it before here, you know, God doesn't do consulting. God does God. And whenever I turn it into a book of suggestions, everything's going to end up falling apart in my life. 
Thomas Jefferson, our, our third president, he thought of Jesus as a wise moral teacher. He respected Jesus so much that he, he wanted to collect Jesus' moral sayings and all the wisdom that Jesus had and, and tell a chronological version of Jesus' life despite distilling Jesus' moral teachings. But as a rationalist, Jefferson could not accept the miraculous. And so he excluded everything that was a miracle. Or He didn't uh, consider Jesus God's son. He thought Jesus was just a wise man teaching. And so he excluded those aspects from his, uh, what's called the Jefferson Bible. And the way he got the Jefferson Bible is he took literally a razor blade, like an X-Acto knife, whatever, and he carefully cut out the small squares of text that, that he accepted the things like the great teachings of Jesus, but if there was something like, you know, raising someone from the dead or, or something, you know, said that he was the son of God, a little son, nope, that isn't going to make it. And so the result was this Jefferson Bible, and you can, you can look them up online. You can go to the Smithsonian Institute. It's, it's there in, in, our, in our museum in, in D.C. I've seen a copy of it at Jefferson's home at Monticello. You may shake your head. You say, man, how bad is that? But don't we sometimes, in a practical manner, come pretty close to that in our own lives? You see, that's exactly what the teachers of the law did. They took God's word, and they decided that they wanted to major on certain things and ignore, totally ignore others. And that's what Jesus is going after them about here in the scripture today. In fact, he, he actually went out at them even more than what we see in, in Mark's version today, because Matthew tells us a lot more of what happened in this case. And, and so I want us to go to, to, to Matthew's uh, record of this, because he gives a more expanded uh, coverage of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23. He says, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees. Now, you hypocrites. Now, this may not sound, I mean, this, this may sound archaic to us, but this is like a slap in the face in Jesus' day. When you say woe to you, you hypocrites, he says, you give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, and mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. In other words, he said, you're picking and choosing what you want to act out in your daily lives. He says, you blind guides. These were the people, folks, that led Israel. These were the guides. These were the people that led them spiritually. They led them socially. They led them civilly. You strain at a gnat, he says, but you swallow a camel. Camel's a pretty good size, okay? When I start with binoculars and turn it into a book of suggestions, I immediately have a bunch of people I've known in my life, and I bet you do as well, who like to pick and choose. Might be the man in the mirror, the woman in the mirror. Well, I love this verse, but I don't like that verse. Well, as a Christian, I'm very careful about this, but I never, I don't think this applies to me, and, and all this pick and choose stuff. And I can see extreme examples of it until I suddenly take it as a mirror and say, oh, that's me too. Because the same stuff is in me and you, and here's what they did. They were really proud because you're supposed to give God back a tenth, a tenth of what you, what you received or what your increase is and what you gained. They were proud that they went so far as to, as to tithe on their spices, and he's challenging them on it. But along the way, when it came to mercy and justice, they would make disjudgments, and they would say, well, those, those poor people over there deserve that. Or this, this person deserves it. Justice, well, you know, what can a few of us do? We really don't have the ability to, to fix that. And when it comes to faithfulness, which simply means dependability, 
When we say that God is faithful, we mean, we mean that he does what he says. Well, their yes was not yes, and their no was not no. Generally, but not always, and that's, that's why they thought, well, it's, it's okay to do it that way. And Jesus said they worried about a gnat. All the while, they got a camel going down their throat. But you and I can be guilty of the very same thing. I can have some of these verses in God's word that I'm very careful to follow, and there's others that say, well, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll get to that later. I have these verses that say, man, I'm kind of proud that I do this and don't do that and stuff like that and judging people. And the Apostle Paul, he said, hey, if you miss one part of the law, you're guilty of the whole thing. But yet we still this day, even those of us that call ourselves by the name of Christ, call ourselves Christ followers, we still don't get that. And we will judge certain people because they do the, the big sins, but yet we'll, we'll gossip, we'll backstab, we'll, we'll, we'll treat people like, like dirt and that kind of stuff. And that's not what God wants for us. Now, I'm not saying none of us are perfect, but we can strive for perfection through the Holy Spirit working in our lives and as we try to follow him. But anytime we, we think we're better than him or her or this person, that person, we're missing, the, we're missing the boat. You see, the more we move down the road of picking and choosing which ones we want to focus on, which ones we want to ignore, which ones are, are, are for them and then which ones are for us, the more that this incredible gift called God's Word becomes something which actually fills us with pride. And we know what the Scriptures say about pride. Pride comes before the fall. Pride was, pride was what, what caused Satan to rebel against God. And he led one-third of the demons to rebel against God, Scripture tells us. We have to guard against pride because Satan said, hey, I'm going to rise above the Almighty. When we pick and choose which part apply and which don't, we end up becoming the judges of God and the judges of Scripture rather than God and the Scripture judging us. And I'm sure many of us have heard things like, oh, well, I don't think a God of love would do that. And there's some things that are hard to read in the Scripture, and I've heard people, people say that. Well, it's kind of interesting because apparently the God of love did do that, but unfortunately we weren't or you weren't around to correct him before we put it in the Bible. We say things like, well, I, I know what the Bible says, but I just feel that God's good with it. Okay? Feelings are important, but we have to be careful. God also gave us a mind. And if we read it and God says it, it's not how we feel about it. It's not what the government says about it. It's not what changing social norms say about it. It's what God says. That's truth. Have you ever searched the internet to find out something on a, on a controversial issue? Have you noticed that you can find whatever side you want? You're going to find someone to agree with you. And if you search far enough, you're going to be justified in your, in your position. And so what happens is you're not really searching for truth. You're searching for someone that agrees with you so you can feel justified in, in, in your position where you are. But it's not a new, a new problem. It was going on in the, in the first century after Jesus went to heaven. The Apostle Paul addresses it in 2 Timothy 4, verse 3. He says, For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. When I turn the Bible into a book of suggestions rather than the Word of God. Thirdly, when we focus on speculation instead of obedience. When we focus on speculation instead of obedience. See, if I hold up as a mirror, I'm asking myself, well, how am I doing? 
If I'm not holding up as a mirror, my mind can go all over the place and I can look through binoculars or look at other people with curiosity. And and, and a lot of people, it ends up saying, well, I start wondering, well, how many angels can dance on on the head of a needle or head of a pin? Who cares? If, if it was important, I think God would have, would have told us. But people are always moving into speculation, trying to figure stuff out. And once again, it's a very ancient problem because if I start wondering about, well, when is the Antichrist going to come? Or how will I recognize him? What is the time frame of this? Or what kind of fish was it that, that swallowed Jonah? I think if it was important for us to know what kind of fish it was, I think God would have told us. And so I'm sorry, but I don't waste time. It's a waste of time in my book trying to figure that out. He says Jonah was swallowed by a fish. I take that at face value and believe it. If we go around chasing all kinds of questions, then we don't have to ask the questions of ourselves. Well, well, am I, how, do I, how do I treat my spouse? How am I treating my neighbors? How honest am I in the marketplace? And we can avoid all this because we're speculating about all the other, the, the, all the other stuff. And, and, and if you re- remember, little kids, little kids love that. They've, all, they've got a million and one questions. And little kids like to ask the unanswerable questions, come up with all kinds of questions. And, and I'm okay. I'm secure enough that I could tell my kids and I could tell other people, I don't know. I don't know. Now, does it challenge me when someone asks me something and I think they expect me to know that? Yeah, it does challenge me. Happens with me and my wife all the time. She asks me a question, and I think, oh, I'm supposed to know that, and I don't. I need to be able to say, I don't know. I want to find out. Curiosity is natural. I want you to see in 1 Timothy 1, verses 3 through 7, Paul says, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus, so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Now, what are endless genealogies? Well, if you read your Old Testament, you've got those places where so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so begat. And any of you ever feel like you just ought to skip over that part and just go to the end of the begats? You do. There's some people that take those and they extrapolate them out and they want to figure out and they don't realize that sometimes names are, names are skipped. So that it wasn't that this person was actually the father of this person. Sometimes it skips names. So that um, the, the way the Jews wrote, the way the he- Hebrew symmetry works, and it happens even in the genealogy of Jesus. Not everybody, in, where it lists the genealogy of Jesus, not everybody's necessarily included there. It was according to what the author's trying to, to show us about Jesus. But people do this, and they look for all kinds of hidden me- meanings and, and stuff like that. And, and Paul continues, and he says in there, he says, These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have wandered away from these and turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. I put this in your notes without a fill in the blank as I wanted you to get it. Answering the unanswerable is not deep Bible study. It's speculation. Because if something is important, I believe that God has told us. I believe that God's word contains everything that we need to know for salvation. Period. Everything. It's not like there's this hidden knowledge that we've got to find out, find out somewhere. I'll talk about that more in a minute. God doesn't have this plan where he died for us so that we could become his sons and daughters and, and then he hides the truth like some super Easter egg hunt that we've got to find the, the, the golden egg and, and open it up. 
The kingdom of heaven, Jesus tells us, is made up of the faith, people that have faith like little children, not the intellect of Einstein. And whenever we find ourselves chasing after the answers to the unanswerable, we will almost always find ourselves giving a pass for the crystal clear areas of how God wants us to live our lives, where he calls us to obey him. Proverbs 35 and 6 says this, Every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words or he will rebuke you and prove you a liar. If it's not clear, it's not essential. Now, I'm not saying that there's something wrong with, you know, raising your hand, with asking a question and you want to know, but, but make sure that you, you, it's not just the first thing you go to. I know a lot of people, that's all they want to do. They just want to study this thing and that thing without getting down the, the basic teachings of Jesus. Make this kind of thing, the, the frosting on the cake, make it a little side conversation when, when you have extra time and stuff like that. After you've used the Bible, use the scriptures as a mirror for your life and about your obedience. And by the way, one of the biggest areas, I'll go ahead and say it, and then I realize that there's some people here that won't like this, but I don't say things on the basis of whether people like them or not, okay? Most of you know me for a while, you know that. This often happens in the area of prophecy, Every time something big happens in the Middle East, there's, there's going to be a big emphasis on the, the book of Revelation or going to Daniel and Ezekiel trying to, trying to figure out the prophecies and how they apply to today. And I'll go ahead and say, I have a word for people like that. I call them prophecy mongers. They go chasing after, after the prophecies. Now, Jesus himself was very clear. He said, only the Father knows when I'm returning. Only the Father knows when I'm returning. But there are some teachers out there, they've got it all figured out. And I hope Jesus is listening to them or reading their books, because otherwise he's going to come back at the wrong time. <laughs> I've been asked many, many times back when I was in the military, you know, I'd ask sailors and Marines, what, what, do, you want to, what do you want to study? Oh, the book of Revelation, chaplain. Let's, let's take the book of Revelation. And they weren't really, they were just, they were enamored with it. They, they thought it'd be neat to study. And okay, when's, when's Jesus going to come back? And I remember when I was in seminary, you know, this, this book came out, 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Going to Return in 1988. And Whoops, it didn't, it didn't happen. It didn't happen. The truth is, I don't know when he's coming back. All I know is that he called me to be ready, and he calls you to be ready. And I'm on the welcoming committee, not the planning committee. I know he's coming back, but I don't know the details of when. But everybody wants to know that. My, uh, my primary New Testament professor in, in, in seminary, Billy Simmons, Dr. Simmons used to say, too many people want to know about the second coming before they, before they start following what Jesus taught in the first coming. The next way Bible study goes bad, number four, when our biblical knowledge becomes a source of pride. We've already touched a little bit on this. When we use it to build ourselves up or when we use it to impress people, uh, if my understanding of Scripture makes me more arrogant and less loving, if my understanding of Scripture makes me feel superior to other people, makes me harsher and less loving, something has gone terribly, terribly, terribly wrong. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, the Apostle Paul is writing to people who were arguing about whether or not Christians could eat meat that had been offered to idols. You know, people were, were getting in fights about this in the Corinthian church. Both sides had great intentions. They, they meant well. The meat was offered in the, in the pagan temples, then it was taken and then sold in the, in the marketplace. And some people say, oh, you can't do that. It was offered to a demon. And then other people say, well, a demon's nothing. It, it, it's, it's, it's a piece of wood or a piece of stone. And, and so the Apostle Paul basically said no to both sides. He said, quit arguing about this. Do what's important in your own life. Do what the Lord is leading you to do. Quit judging everybody else. If you have a clear conscience and you can eat the meat that was in the pagan temple, eat it. If you don't, 
then, then don't. But don't judge one another. And then he added this at the end. He says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And how often do we use the Bible to tear down rather than building others up? He says, if you really understand it, you'll, you'll have love and you will edify, you will build others up. But he says, sadly, what's going on is you have more knowledge, you believe, and you're just becoming more and more spiritually arrogant. Have you ever been in a Bible study where someone misquotes a passage of Scripture or they give the wrong reference, the wrong address of the Scripture, and you just sat there, I know that. That's not in Romans, that's in Galatians. Or someone says, well, and you know, in John 14, 8, it says that God forgot to love the world. And you're probably sitting there right now, wait, well, that's John 3, 16. You know, we, we do it. And we judge other people. We're not judged, we're not, we're not tested by a Bible test, we're tested by a heart test. How, how well we're applying the Bible to our hearts, to our lives, to how we're living. And the sad news is that there's a lot of people who know the Bible inside and out. And they take their bank of Bible knowledge and they think that that balances out all the sin in their life. But it doesn't. It can't even come close. God, God isn't going to give you a Bible quiz when you get to heaven. He's gonna, there's only one thing that matters. What have you done with my son? What have you done with Jesus Christ? So be very careful when you come across a, a Bible teaching, a book, a conference, a seminar, and, and their teaching is so deep that only, only the enlightened can get it. And, and you start feeling, wow, I'm glad I went to that seminar. I'm glad I read that book. I'm glad I heard that podcast or saw that you, YouTube video. You should not be glad. You should run. Because God said himself that it's childlike faith. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't listen to other people and stuff like that. You should. But you need to be discerning and not let it go to your head and then make you prideful about it. There's nothing wrong with intellect. There's nothing wrong with education. There's nothing wrong with, with deep study. There's nothing wrong with a, with a big vocabulary. There's nothing wrong with being studious. But there's everything wrong when you use it to puff yourself up and make yourself better than the man or woman to your, to your side. Number five, how Bible study goes back. And we're almost finished here. When we use it to hammer other Christians. When we use it to hammer under other Christians. This goes back again. I told you that the binocular thing was the basis for almost all of these. You know, I'm reading a verse. Instead of seeing what it says to me, I'm looking for the other Christians who don't agree with me on this. So I can just you know, slap them with this verse and say, here, you need, you need to do this. Now, there is a time and a place to be crystal clear. Because there is a time and a place to use the Bible to expose and to divide. I've already mentioned Paul's letter to the Galatians. And the Galatian church, he's hammering some folks there. And he's hammering that because they, they're claiming to be Christians, and they're, but they're saying, well, in order to become a Christian, you have to go through this path and go through Judaism first. The Judaizers in, in Galatia were saying that you had to, you know, if you were a male, you had to be circumcised and you had to keep kosher and, and the females had to keep kosher and to, and to follow the 613 law. And, and you had to be a Jew so that you could become a Christian. And it, it became a big thing in the early church, so much so that in Acts chapter 15 or 16, some of you know which chapter it is. I know it's in about that place. They had the, the Jerusalem council because it was such an issue. They wrote, they wrote to the mother church in Jerusalem and said, hey, what's going on here? And so they decided, no, the Jerusalem council there under the leadership of the Holy Spirit said, no, that's not what you, what you have to do. They were adding to the gospel. So when there's a genuine heresy that comes along, like saying, well, God was once a man, and, and if you keep after it, you can become like God. Well, there's a problem with that, because that's not what scripture, what scripture teaches. 
Or if it says, well, Jesus isn't really God. Uh, you know, he's just a, a smart man, a wise man, a, like a guru, a great, great teacher. There was a problem with that because that's not what Scripture teaches. Or, or, if, or if someone comes along, well, all roads lead to the same place. What we call universalism in theology, people that believe that everyone goes to heaven because a loving God would never, never, never allow someone to go to hell. It's not what Scripture teaches. It's heresy. And so when you speak up and you divide over heresy, that's a, that's a different thing. When, when people call sin righteousness, and there's some teachings out there, there's actually some churches and some places that have turned it into, and basically are calling wickedness righteousness. Isaiah 5.20 puts it this way. It says there, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. So yeah, there is a time to, to speak up and say, but make sure that you're not getting prideful over it. It's not about you. It's about him. And most of our division within the body of Christ, though, isn't over these things. It's over secondary things. And what goes wrong is when I use the Bible to hammer other people over things that are not critical to salvation, we major on the minors. Finally, how, the Bible, how Bible study goes bad. When we teach one thing and do another. James 3.1 I almost used it at the beginning of the message, but I decided to save, save it to here. James 3, verse 1 says, Woe to you who claim to be teachers. You're going to have a stricter judgment, he says. And I take that very, very seriously as, as a teacher. Matthew says the measure we use, and this is everybody, measure we use to judge others is the measure that's going to be used on us. So when I say one thing and I teach one thing but do another, I'm putting myself in jeopardy. And a little practical application, particularly for those of you that have influence over younger people. You're a teacher, you're a parent, you're, you, you've got a niece, you've got a nephew, you've got grandchildren. I think I've included just about everybody in here now. Um, please don't use the Bible to tell them to do one thing when you're doing another because you're bringing great harm upon yourself. But I want you to catch this, you're also bringing great harm upon them. In my work as a military chaplain, I ministered mostly to people who didn't go to church, or they were de-churched. It's one of the reasons I have such a heart for the unchurched and the de-churched. It's one of the reasons why I believe and why I'm going to Novo is because I believe that the church, in many cases, has missed the boat and has turned inward and judging of everybody outside. And I believe the church needs to be missional. Jesus gave us a mission to make disciples and to advance the kingdom. Not sit in a holy huddle someplace, you know, singing, Jesus loves me, this I know, but all those others out there, you know, I don't know about that. You know, it's important that we not be hypocrites because when we're hypocritical, when we're hypocritical, that's what pushes people away. When we're judgmental, people don't feel welcome. It's why over the years, you've heard me say it 150,000 times, and I'm using hyperbole. Jesus used hyperbole. I want this place, Sky Valley Chapel, to be a place where people that are unchurched, where people that don't know Jesus yet will feel safe to come here. They'll feel, be, feel welcomed here. They won't, yeah, it's a family reunion when we meet on Sunday mornings, but they won't feel like they're excluded from that family reunion. They'll feel welcome to come and share with this family and find a God that loves them. If there's anything I've found that turns people off, it's hypocrisy. It's church leaders, it's pastors, it's parents, it's grandparents, it's Christian school teachers, it's, it's whoever says one thing or, or is judgmental and, and does another. You're not only hurting yourself, and you'll answer to God for it, but you're hurting them, and you're pushing this way. I believe Jesus thinks this is a big, big deal. 
So I leave you today with this simple reminder. The word of God, as the psalmist said, is a lamp unto our feet. It guides us. It's a light unto our path. It makes us wise into salvation. It shows us how to live a life that, that reflects all that God has done for us and, and how, what righteousness looks like. Let's not make it something that the enemy can use, can use against us and use against others and use against God. This is not a warning to don't read your Bible. It's basically an admonition to read your Bible properly. Read it under the leadership and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. What a story. joining us for this message. For more information on Chapel Mole and the ministry of Sky Valley Chapel, please visit our website at svmin.com. You can support this ministry on our website, Facebook page, or by downloading our app in the Apple or Google Play Store. Have a blessed day.